Hello and welcome to the Biology of Superheroes podcast. I'm your host, Shane Campbell Staten. In this episode, we celebrate the conclusion of the epic series, Game of Thrones. Now, I've intentionally avoided this last season until we could get this episode out, so I promise there will be absolutely no last season spoilers. But for this episode, we're going to dive into the biology of dragons. I sit down with Dr. Brett Tobolsky, director of the Flight Lab at University of Montana, and we chat about the evolution of flight and its biomechanics, body size, and physiology of these fantastic beasts. I'm joined in the lab this time around by a very special guest co-host, comedian and actor, Ted Limpert. So strap in and sit back as we spit that hot science fire. Dracarys. Because the Biologist Superheroes podcast starts now. So we're doing something a little different in the lab this time around because we got a special guest co-host. My man Arian couldn't be here for this one, so I had to bring in some big guns. My main man, Ted Limpert. What's up, Ted? That's me. Hey, how's it going? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm all right, man. Yeah. Dude, it's been a really long time since we've seen each other. It's been like 10, 15 years it's, more than that? It's How been the better we? part of a decade. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> at, the, man. at the very least. Yeah. Um, yeah, so what are, you, what are you up to in L.A. these days? Yeah, uh, I'm out here trying to live the dream, yeah. um, acting and uh, doing improv and comedy, and then I'm really focusing on voiceover a lot lately. Um, but yeah, yeah, just, uh, trying to enjoy the nice weather. And I used to, I was in New York for a while and, uh, you know, came out here to pursue, pursue acting and, and voiceover. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the place to be, right? This is the place to be. Yeah. The hustle is, is alive out here. Yeah. <laughs> it is alive. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. So for this episode, man, we are diving into the game of thrones. Oh yeah. Oh, oh my goodness. Oh, God. So the last season is upon us. Mm-hmm. It sure is. So tell me, Ted. Did you first of all? Did you read the books? I read the first three books, okay, you read um, the and first I was three. like, "Yeah!" And then the the series. I got into the series, and I was like, "I don't need to read the books anymore." Yeah, I feel like you got to do one of the two. Yeah, yeah. Right? I feel like I did kind of a little bit of both. Yeah, uh, obviously more of the, watching the series at this point. But, yeah, um, I yeah. think it's it's hard to appreciate both to the same degree. Like if totally. you start with the books, yeah, you get really critical of the TV show. If yeah. you start with the TV show, you're like, "What in the world is going on with the books?" Definitely, it's hard to it's hard to pull off both unless you're like. A, a super geek into yeah it. yeah and I'm, I'm close I, I i love both i think the the books were great uh the series is super well done i feel like it's part like it's almost like a fantasy soap opera i feel like yeah. i'm watching like it could yeah. be my, my like, kind of show. Like, <laughs> political drama yeah yeah a it's got bit. part part everything i mean the last couple episodes not to give anything away but like had some real humor in them too which i was just like okay yeah I get it so i actually i have not started okay. the latest all right. See, if you ruin this for me, Ted, oh, I will destroy. I'll try you. not to. <laughs> you know there are dragons in them. Right? Yeah, I, I <laughs> have heard. I've, yeah. I've heard there are dragons. Okay, good. Um, so looking back, tell me, did you have like what was your, the most heartbreaking moment looking back Oof. through the series for you? If you had to choose one, one. Um, yeah, I think the. I mean, there were so many. I, f- I feel like the. Um, let's see. The, so the red wedding. 
ah, was yes. very painful to watch and g- gruesome and like yes. terrifying. Uh, As is a lot of this. Yeah, series. a lot of the series. That's why I'm like, there's so many things to choose from. Um, I, f- I feel like all, all the things that have happened to Sansa are like, mm. each and every one was just like, oh God, what? Yeah. Not again. And now she's, you know, killing it for the most part. But uh, literally. But yeah, just went through, literally, yeah. yeah. <laughs> went through a lot to get there. Yeah. Uh, so you got to respect that. Um, yeah, and then I, I always, I feel for Tyrion, I feel like, mm. you know, he's, he's a smart little cookie and, you know, I think he, uh, you know, li- lives in the shadow of his siblings a little bit. But, yeah, of course. You know, he's he's coming into his own. I don't know. It's it's a crazy series. I feel like there are just so many moments that I'm like, oh god, yeah. no, no, not don't. him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember, man. I remember watching the first season. And yeah. You know, like you know, following uh, like Ned Stark in the uh, beginning, I was like, obviously, this show is about him. Yeah, totally. Like this is great. You know. Yeah. And then at the end of the first season. He's- He's gone. That's when you knew all bets were off. And yeah, it's I'm, just like, well, I don't know, now anything could happen. Yeah, I'm like, wh- why are we even watching this if you're just going to chop people's head off? Yeah. Like, that's not cool, That's how man. I felt. I was just like, anybody's head could be could roll. You exactly. know, you have no idea. Yeah. Exactly. Like you fall in love with a character, all of a sudden, you know, they're headless and in the crypt. Yeah. So yeah. I have to say, for me, the single most heartbreaking moment and this, like, literally ruined my day. I made the mistake okay. of watching this in the morning. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, geez. The Mountain versus the Viper. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, that was... That that switch at the end was just, too like... Much. Too much. Yeah. Because you you were like, all right, victory, you know, yeah. like... Uh, <laughs> and you're like, stop, stop playing around. Yeah. Stop, know, stop yeah. playing. Get get out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. That was that was definitely tough. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, okay, so now that we're in the last season... Yeah. Who are you hoping is sitting on the throne when everything is said and done? You know, uh, I, I love me some Jon Snow. Uh-huh. Uh, I love me some Daenerys. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I feel like she's been going for it so hard this whole series. I just have a feeling it's not just not going to end well for oh, her. Man. I don't okay. know. Something's. I mean, I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't want to make any any predictions too hard. But I, I feel like I, I, I mentioned her before. But Sansa, I feel like. She's she's done the work, you mm-hmm. know. She's like, I don't know. She's maybe been Jon putting Snow in that hustle. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But for me, man, for me, I, I, I got to root for the Mama of Dragons. Oh yeah. Hey, I mean, I, I'm not against you. I, yeah, I, I, mean, I hope she makes it. Yeah, yeah. I, I will bend the knee. Yeah. You know. Oh, um, me too. Especially yeah. with those dragons. I mean, that's. I, I feel like. She, she she still has the the two. Is that a, too much of a spoiler? <laughs> Maybe she cut that out. All right. <laughs> so she yeah. So she still has some dragons. Spoilers are She's yeah. got a handful of dragons. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Shoulderful. Um. But yeah. So I mean, that seemingly would be enough. But I guess you know they, there were dragons before all this series started. It's and true. That went by. So who knows? I don't know. Very I, true. But I love the dragons. I, I, if they could sit the Iron Throne, I would. I would bend the knee. Yeah. Immediately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So today, you know, we are digging into some of the biology of the Seven Kingdoms. Now, when we're talking about the biology in this Game of Thrones universe, there's obviously a lot of stuff that we can talk about. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, we got this like grayscale grayscale, disease that was going around. Like, what is all that about? Um, You know, also, like, what in the hell is up with the mountain right now? And, like, that whole thing. Frankenstein zombie type of thing going on. Yeah. Yeah. So we could talk about that. You know, but obviously I'm an evolutionary biologist. You know, I've got a a thing in my heart for the critters, right? The creatures. And obviously, on one hand, you got the dire wolves. Mm -hmm. All right. 
love those direwolves. Oh, yeah. Although they've been getting it pretty pretty hard throughout yeah. the series. Yeah. Um, but I think this episode we're gonna dig into the dragons. Ooh. All day. I'm every in. Day. Yeah. All day. All right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so to help us out, you know, I sat down with uh, Dr. Brett Tobolsky, who studies, among other things, the evolution and biomechanics of flight. And he's currently the director of the Flight Laboratory at University of Montana. So let's hear a little bit about his work. Absolutely. Well, I'm Brett Tobolsky. I'm a professor at the University of Montana in the Division of Biological Sciences and also the director of a field research station at Fort Missoula. So out here at the field station, like what, like what is your, like right now, what is your, your research passion? What are the sorts of questions that, that, you're, that you are pursuing? Sure. I think the driving themes are a fascination with body size, the, uh, a fascination with flight, and fluid dynamics. And what, are, what are fluid dynamics? So that's the movements of fluids in, in relation to forces. Uh, when you push on a solid object, we're, as humans, much more familiar with the notion of you accelerate it, uh, you apply force to it, and it accelerates. And, and if it, in our visual frame of reference, if you do that, you see the object move. The mysterious thing about air, in particular, is that we don't see it unless we use special tools to reveal it. Mm-hmm. But it's it's same kind of rules that govern air movement in response to forces being applied to air uh, also apply to water. And that's nice because you can just go out and look at water moving in a creek or paddle a canoe and generate, when you do that, if you look at a spoon even inside a coffee cup and you're stirring your cream inside the coffee, you're applying force to that water. It's rolling up in what are called vortices, and those vortices are a record of the force. And so the study of that type of reaction, uh, applying forces or energy to fluids and how they react, is fluid dynamics. And things that swim, things that fly, um, must make their way around the world by uh, the, the laws of fluid dynamics. Amazing. So, so this is what you spend your entire day thinking about. It's true, and it's taken me in unusual places, not only from the, the bird flight side of things, which is where I spend the bulk of my time uh, thinking, but also with sea spiders. And it took me to scuba diving in Antarctica and studying polar gigantism. Wow. So that brought together, it's, it's a first glance, you say, what do hummingbirds, a major uh, study subject for me, have in common with sea spiders and the answer is the dynamics of fluids right so a lot of physics yeah a lot of biomechanics and a lot of going to really cool places <laughs> yeah it takes me to yeah, exactly right yeah, okay. it's true you get uh, that's a good picture of it yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome dragons offer a really fascinating thought experiment i think from a biological standpoint and i think we will hit on a few topics uh, throughout the episode uh, but to start, obviously one of the most glaring aspects to explore when it comes to dragons is flight. Oh, yeah. So here in the real world, there are several different lineages that have figured out how to fly. We're talking about powered flight, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, birds have figured it out. Uh, bats have figured it out independently. Oh, yeah. uh, if we look, um, you know, a little bit farther afield, insects have figured out how to do it several different times. And then even if we look back in the fossil record, we have things like pterosaurs, right, which are also independent evolutions of this uh, this powered flight. 
So throughout this episode, you'll hear me say pterodon, pteranodon, pterosaur, pterodactyl. All these are different genera or different suborders, all within the order Pterosauria, which is an extinct clade of toothless flying dinosaurs. And so when I'm considering dragons, right, that begs the question for me of what are the most likely origins of uh, this unique ability that we see in dragons, specifically within the Game of Thrones universe? Yeah, that's a great, great question. I feel like I, I knowing nothing about science, <laughs> uh, but I, I, I was always thinking of them. They, they definitely have like a bat-like shape, right? The, or like yeah, the sort dragons. of like, yeah. But, um, but yeah, I'm always, always wondering that. Where do they come from? I mean, they, they kind of act like dogs or cats, maybe, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, or, or um, you know, little children, even <laughs> for, for the mother of dragons. Yeah, um, I mean, is it because I yeah. think you know you have to. I, you know, I think that the creators had to sort of mix a few of these different characters, you know, like different animals in, you know, to, to, you know, make us feel like this sense of attachment, right? Yeah. And this attachment of us, obviously, to, you know, to the dragons and then the dragons to Daenerys and Daenerys to the dragons. Yeah. You know, there's like some like cute and cuddly stuff happening yeah. every once in a while that you don't really see and then with. They burn some people yeah, a lot. And yeah. then sometimes they <laughs> got to throw that fire. fire. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so. I asked uh, Brett a little bit about just like the general origins mm-hmm. of of flight here in our universe, and let, so let's hear a little bit about what he has to say about that. Let's do it. So obviously, dragons don't exist, but I do find it interesting that so many cultures around the world like have these dragon myths. So, if they did exist, what do you think would be sort of most likely? evolutionary origins of of this sort of a creature hmm. well my my best guess would be uh dinosaurs uh-huh. <laughs> i would say that they had uh they certainly had the evolution of very large body sizes in dinosaurs um, there are words the trajectory that led towards pterodactyls and people argue uh, passionately about the even the dimensions of pterodactyls pterosaurs and the notion of them flying under their own power Mm-hmm. much as the dragons do in Game of Thrones versus uh, whether they would just be barely able to get off the ground and fly by harvesting energy from the air like very large uh, condors or mm-hmm. uh, this is like and, more gliding yeah exactly sort of Being passive s- flight mm-hmm. where you can leap into the wind if you're just gliding much like a, a human on a, a, a hang gliding okay uh, or apparatus or a paraglider you're not generating lift other than what you're accomplishing by descending or harvesting from the air. And so modern scientists, paleontologists argue, as I said, quite passionately about the biology of those things. And then you have the lineage of theropod dinosaurs that led towards modern birds. And then indeed modern birds that fly are still considered part of that clade. They're still part of that lineage. So my best guess based on available evidence is that the the dragons would have come from one of those lineages. Yeah. Some, some sister taxa perhaps. Like what sort of characters would you use to try to place these things in, in a phylogenetic context. Because on one side you have the the pterodons, mm-hmm. like all the, like that sort of clade of, of which is like several genera, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, but these are, if I'm not mistaken, all the pterodons are, are toothless, mm-hmm, correct? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And obviously, but the theropods leading to, uh, leading to birds mm-hmm. are, 
Um, they were obviously toothed. Right? They include yeah. things like velociraptors and then mm-hmm. also all the like flighted tooth transition forms that led to modern modern birds. If you had to like take a guess, yeah, yeah like, sort of based on what we see in Game of Thrones, like do you think you could place them in, in one versus the other? Well, it's a it's a, an impression, right? A connotation of the uh, the behavior, but I feel as if to an extent, their behavior has been modeled on birds. Some of their mm-hmm. now ne- never having seen a pterodon, but I, w- I would say that the toothness of them uh, would be a component. What I'd love to see would be their bones to see if they have, for example, uh, air sacs uh, that invest inside their bones. They're hollow. Mm-hmm. Uh, the aspects of their cervical vertebrae, birds and the theropods lean towards birds have very complicated saddle uh, types of facets that allow a great deal of movement so if you watch a modern bird turn its head it can spin quite a quite mm-hmm. an array not 360 degrees yeah but, but like in, like looking at an owl like as exactly. it turns it's like almost like it seems like almost like 360 does, degrees yeah. right like we would we they would break our ways. necks trying to do that yeah and then so when you look closely at their cervical vertebrae they have joints that look quite a bit like our own human thumb joint mm-hmm. right? it's a saddle joint that allows a great deal of rotation yeah and how yeah. how old is because we don't like when we look at Game of Thrones, I don't remember any like I don't think dragons can quite get their head around like that. Like how er, yeah. like how early on in in bird evolution did that did that come about? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm not sure truthfully that the uh, because a lot of things were changing, and the, the, the answer to that would certainly be uh, a place to look at least for the answer to that would be in the fossils coming out of China mm-hmm. uh, in the last five to ten years. But, I've been so focused on uh, aspects of wing function that I'm, I'm not really familiar with the, the details and what's known from the neck vertebrae. However, I would anticipate that there's information there. It's uh, because there are bones that are fully ossified or calcified. And part of the challenge with the flight apparatus in many of these fossil forms is that some of the key elements, like the keel in a modern bird, a huge component of their flight capacity is this enormous keel. And those weren't ossified or they didn't exist in some of the early forms. And so, again, people debate about uh, the extent to which some of those early theropod fossils could fly. So it seems like if we had access to these dinosaur bones, there are several factors that we could actually use to identify their evolutionary origins, right? the origins of, of these dragons. But as it stands, right, what we see in the TV series it remains kind of unclear. You know, maybe they're more closely related to birds. You know, maybe they're more closely related to things like, like pterodactyls. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have characteristics that, that you would think might put them in one place or the other. So on, on one hand, right, I mean, birds have these hollow air sacs, like Brett was talking about, which makes their bones really light, which is obviously really useful when it comes to flight. But when we look on the screen, right, seeing these dragons, they actually seem like really stocky, really heavy animals. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I can definitely see a, a chicken resemblance. Maybe that's what uh, he was talking <laughs> yeah. about. Um, no, but yeah, that's I've, I've always kind of thought about that because in talking um, uh, just there, the the weight of the animal that he that he's it's more of a not a passive flight but he's really like pushing against the air and using more muscle which in my mind weighs more than fat or you yeah. know, whatever it weighs more than hollow bones for sure <laughs> yeah. uh but yeah I, I would wonder yeah if that's how how far into it you could go 
just kind of seeing them and observing them, like what their weight is and what it, how it affects their their flying. Like, yeah, actually, like are they really like, Ooh, oh man, I just got back from a flight that was tough. <laughs> <laughs> Gonna have to my, sleep for ten days. My arms are really killing exactly. me, literally, yeah, literally. <laughs> um, yeah, and then on the other side, so you would think that you know, based on their size, like maybe they're more closely related to things like pterodons, right? yeah. which you know seem to be you know obviously of much larger stature than. Uh, than obviously modern birds, uh, you know, but even some of the transition forms. But pterodons didn't have teeth, right? And, yeah, yeah. You know, dragons, did, did pterodons have uh, air sacs, or did they have hollow bones? So or, or? I don't think that that uh, pterodons. I don't think they had hollow bones. Okay. But one thing that they 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 certainly didn't have like they they don't have teeth. Yeah, yeah, no right? teeth. And but neither do chickens, which is obviously yeah, or pigeons, which Yeah, so neither do chickens, but we do know from the fossil record that their ancestors yeah. did have teeth. Mm-hmm. And actually, if we can now go into the lab and we can tinker with uh with genes in chickens hmm. and have them develop teeth, which is kind of crazy. Really? Uh, this is something that's happening okay. right now using things like CRISPR technology. Yeah, yeah. Chick- teeth, chicken was with teeth. Yeah, really. Okay, yeah. but besides that, you know, if you're if you don't have teeth, right, mm-hmm. unless you're being genetically engineered, like once you lose something like that, it's hard to gain it again, right? This is sort of a fundamental uh, theory of evolution that you know it's it's relatively easy to lose something. Mm-hmm. Right? So you can think of it as like there's a lot of different ways to to break a clock. Yeah. Right. But if you break it, there's only one way to put it back together so that it yeah. works properly. And right? you bought it. Also. Yeah. yeah. You definitely, <laughs> yeah. Break it, you bought it. Yeah. I learned <laughs> that at an early age. Yeah. No, no, yeah. It's hard to put back together. And, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So if you're thinking about all the different uh, gene networks that are required to build a tooth mm-hmm. and to pattern like how teeth fit in a mouth, you know, once that program is broken, it'd be really hard to get it back. So if dragons were closely related to things like pterodons, if they were like, you know, within that same group, since the group, since every other species in that group lacks teeth, they would have had to gain teeth really quickly mm-hmm. by themselves from not having teeth, uh, from, from an ancestor that did not have teeth. And that, evolutionarily speaking, is, is kind of difficult. Yeah. So on both sides, there's you know, potentially evidence on both sides of, of this story, like maybe pterodons, maybe birds, we're not quite sure. Uh, but we're going to dig a little bit deeper. So if, if we think about this a little more deeply, obviously, regardless of the origins, dragon, dragonflight didn't just appear out of nowhere. right? So this begs the question, exactly what factors lead to the evolution of this like fully fledged powered flight? Uh, Brett shared with me a couple of competing theories on this topic. All right. Yeah, there's... Great deal of passion and debate, and uh, on uh, his, if you want to say historically, <laughs> over the last century and a half, uh, people have argued from the fossil forms that there were two major types of um, early models that an animal could have been running and using wing flapping to assist in getting off the ground, and that's a, a, a running model. That's sort of that's kind of what we see in Game of Thrones, right? It is, yeah. Uh, slow. We'll come back to slow at some point, hopefully, <laughs> yeah. because that is key. But uh, you could picture a, maybe a crow-sized animal running and then trying to leap, and as it's leaping, it's getting a little bit of a better distance or trajectory by flapping. Mm-hmm. 
The alternative that it was long argued was a, a trees down, so that would be called ground up, and then the alternative hypothesis was trees down, where people argued that animals would climb up, and then from the perch, leap off and glide and descend and prolong that trajectory by gliding. And in the last, uh, I'd say 20 years, there have been two major continuations of some of this debate with some uh, details that are important to clarify. One, I think, uh, has been strongly championed by Robert Dudley of the University of California at Berkeley, that uh, is a trees down or a gliding type of model, but the argument is that gliding requires much less energy, requires much less muscle mass, and if once you have those muscles for powered flight, you have to carry them around even when you're not flying, and they cost just to have. And he's been studying insects, ants in particular, that leap from trees and, and guide their trajectory by a form of parachuting or gliding. And he's been exploring uh, how that relates to the broader uh, phylogenetic trends in bats and birds. And a person who's a good friend, I mean, they're both friends, but a, a person that's also associated with this field research station, Ken Dial, uh, at this facility, started to observe an alternative model that's prominent also in the, in the modern debate about the origins of flight, and that's called wing-assisted incline running. And these are uh, trajectories that animals will take when they're climbing up a slope. He observed this first in nestling birds that weren't capable of flying, ground birds, and there's a uh, pattern that they will climb, even when they're not moving their wings, they'll almost climb like on all fours like a human baby to get up a slope. But within two or three days after that, so they would be five days after they fledge, they start flapping their wings and generating tiny forces that help them climb. And that continues on into adulthood, and it's a, a pattern that is not just with climbing slopes, it happens on water with uh, ducklings, for example, steaming and paddling. And so it more broadly is a notion of coming down to what are the evolutionary origins flapping, which requires a great deal of power, or were they gliding? And one problem, not to take one side or the other, I think it's important to explore both, obviously, mm -hmm. but one, one general problem is there aren't extant models extant living species that, uh, of birds or bats that tend to leap from trees and simply glide to, to prolong their trajectory or transition to moderate flapping. And so the argument would be, because they don't exist, one possibility is that uh, maybe that was uh, a transitional phase that's now extinct. Mm -hmm. And then the other, again, argued quite passionately, is that, well, the modern biomechanical models are, are better because they're testable and therefore it had to be a flapping origin. Oh, I don't okay. have a particularly, what is the, what is the term, a polite term? I, I'm not, I, I can stand at a distance and, and at least appreciate the potential contributions of both. Okay. If I had to be pressed, uh, I'll, I'll just you know, politely escape and get a coffee. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair enough. From what Brett is saying, it seems like there is this ongoing debate about sort of how powered flight originates, generally speaking, you know, which obviously does not fare well for us trying to understand the yeah. origins of powered flight in yeah. these dragons that we see in the Game of Thrones. But we can, I think, pull a little bit of information from what we see and based on uh, what Brett was explaining. So on one hand, we have this sort of trees down hypothesis that he was talking about where you have... You know, animals that have a semi-arboreal lifestyle, so they, they're climbing up into trees, and then 
they're gliding, right? And then that gliding essentially leads over time to the evolution of actual powered flight. So if we're looking in our universe, we actually see that some reptiles have gone down this exact road. So in Southeast Asia, there is an entire genus um, of, of lizards called Draco, which is the Latin for dragon, there it is. Right. Uh, that are gliders. Mm-hmm. So they have uh, actually modified ribs that splay out and they have skin attached to them. So they act as wings to help them glide from tree to tree. Wow. And if we're pulling from the real world, like maybe this was the origin of powered flight in dragons. Although the when we compare the anatomy, we see that they are very distinct right, in the sense that Draco have all four limbs that okay. are standard you know, lizard limbs, which you'd expect by a lizard running around on the ground, but they've modified their rib cage. But when we look at the dragons in Game of Thrones, we see that they've modified their forelimbs, much like a bat or like a bird or uh, or a, a pterodactyl, in the sense that you know they their forelimbs now serve the purpose of of powered flight. But maybe there was some equivalent origin of this gliding behavior in uh, in dragons. Yeah. Do do, do we know why Draco uh, developed the the kind of flayed rib cage? Is that was it like a for predators or prey or yeah so the the most likely hypothesis Mm. is escape from predators Mm. so typically small lizards like that that occur in you know these really lush environments they are nature's lunchbox like absolutely everything that can fit them in their mouth want to eat them and one good way to get away from those sort of creatures is to just jump off of a tree and glide to the to the next one over yeah for sure. Well, maybe these uh, these dragons were just regular old lizards, and they're like, "We got to go to the gym. These bullies keep beating up on us. All <laughs> of a sudden, they're flying." You yeah. know? Although it's it's hard to believe what would have been out there. Yeah. that was bigger, bigger than than, that's true. than a dragon. That's true. Because I, I think the next biggest thing that we see are dire wolves, and they're huge, yeah, but they're, they're nowhere no. near the size of yeah, a dragon. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to see that fight though. Yeah, I, I don't think it would end well for the dire wolf, unfortunately. But yeah, I mean, but, it would yeah. still be epic to It'd see. Be epic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, but that also brings to mind that obviously dragons were not always that big, right? When we when they first hatch out in Game of Thrones, actually pretty tiny. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right? And that brings the the other side of the equation that Brett was talking about this this ground up hypothesis. Yeah. You know, and one of the the things that he was talking about was this this idea of like incline running, right? and have being able to flap your your forewings can or being able to flap your your forelimbs can help you traverse these sort of steep inclines and we see that a lot in uh in early developing birds yeah so when we first see the dragons yeah. you know they are actually pretty small and yeah. oh yeah you know when they're on like Daenerys's shoulder they're constantly flapping to like, sort of try to keep their balance yeah yeah and this is a similar sort of process or where you're using the power generated by your wings not to power flight but to generate force to help you you know either move around or or maintain you know some sense of of orientation yeah and so if we're thinking about this happening early in life you know one of the things that we know so we have this this saying in evolutionary biology, specifically when it comes to evolutionary developmental biology, that ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. Now, what that means is that you know traits that are 
uh, traits that pop up early in development also have a tendency to be the ancestral traits of a lineage moving back through evolutionary time because things that pop up earlier in life are harder to change. For instance, you know, like we, you know, at some point, like we have tails that then recede. We have gills at some point in our development that recede. We don't need tails. We don't need gills. But because they pop up so early in development, getting rid of them, you risk ruining a lot of things that also develop really early and ruining an entire body plan. So they have a tendency to, to stay around. So if we're thinking about what these dragons are doing as babies, maybe... Right, that speaks to some aspect of the circumstances that led to the origin of powered flight for these species, generally speaking, like over evolutionary time. Yeah. So in a way, kind of thinking of, uh, this is something that I, I was going to, was wondering about, which is you don't see in the series because they're just hatched out of eggs alone. But if the, if the mother or parents, the dragons would take care of the, the little ones when they were hatched. Mm. And if that has anything to do with them, having to just be out on their own and kind of figure out that oh we gotta we gotta fly or, or, or i don't know uh but i just i just wonder how that if that has any effect on their the, the kind of like how they're taken care of once they're hatched that they're on their own yeah so this idea of maternal care we ha- we have no bearing at yeah. it on on this um if if we're looking at so again if we're thinking about like the potential place for dragons in the tree of life if they are like nested within birds, you know, or even as nested within dinosaurs, it's easy to believe that they would have some form of paternal care, right? So a parent that's guiding them through like some juvenile stage. Yeah. Because when we look at, you know, the ancest the modern ancestors of, of dinosaurs, birds, the vast majority of them have some form of parental care. Mm-hmm. Um and we have fossil evidence that suggests that many dinosaur species, they're even theropod dinosaurs, uh, which led to the birds and you know, we would imagine would be really closely related to dragons because they have teeth. We have fossil evidence that suggests that they cared for, at least some of those species cared for their young post-hatching. And then even if we sort of jump out and look at the, the most closely related lineage, which are the crocodilians. Yeah almost all crocodilian species care for their their young as well Hmm. so if we're trying to reconstruct you know whether or not you know these there was paternal care in uh, in dragons given where they might sit on the tree in the tree of life and what their what the closely related species are doing we suggest that there actually was is paternal care in uh, uh, in in this species in game of thrones and Unfortunately, you know, the essentially the entire species have been driven extinct, except for all we know, these three, these three eggs. Where do these eggs come from? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which actually does not bode well for them, because I, as far as I can tell, all three of the dragons seem to be male. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's, so, that's another question I, I was going to ask. Yeah, so that, yeah. that doesn't have 
um, that doesn't have great bearing yeah, for for it to continue. Do, do we know their uh, how long they can live? I, I forget if that's in the series. Uh, I don't know actually. That's yeah, a. That's I mean, I'd imagine as such a large species, they probably have a relatively long lifespan. Long lifespan. Yeah. Uh, and it seems like you know, dra- like the myth of the dragon. Yeah. You know, seems to be associated like around with for a while. You know, super ancient, you know, like being yeah. ancient and you mm-hmm. know, around for hundreds or maybe even thousands of years. But yeah. I don't think we actually get that information in the TV show. Maybe it's in the books, but um, yeah. I've never actually read the books. Maybe it's in that fifth or sixth book that I didn't read. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, or any of the books that you didn't read. Or Brett read. Come on, you guys are scientists. Yeah. You're not reading the books? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, man. I, I, w- I went all in, in the t- on sure. the TV show. Yeah. Uh, I, chose, I chose the TV show over the books, and that's what I'm sticking to. Until that's... the series ends, then I might go yeah, to the yeah. books. It's, they're, they're definitely worth a read, but the series is just so good. Yeah. So, so good. So in, in any case, right, there's this, you know, as Brett was saying, this lack of transition forms you know, sort of hampers our ability to really figure out whether or not here in the real world, whether the origins of flight were, you know, as he said, from the ground up or from the trees down. But it's, it, I think it's always fascinating me, to me to think that there are these kinds of outstanding questions in mm-hmm. science, right? I mean, these are, you know, I mean, some of the most interesting and fascinating questions that we can ask like the origins of something as spectacular as flight in in the tree of life and we're still trying to understand exactly how it came about yeah yeah no that's it it definitely makes you think because there's a lot of i mean take dinosaurs for example we we are unable to observe them or have seen them and we have to piece together the the narrative from uh you know research and exploration and their their bones or what's left of them yeah and so with game of thrones all we have is just this uh you know kind of like behavioral observation you know what they look like yeah which Uh, is more than we have in the fossil record that's true yeah 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 so actually if uh for anybody listening if you're interested in sort of learning more about how we know what we know about dinosaurs you should check out um either of our two episodes on uh on jurassic park so if we dive back into game of thrones like let's look at a slightly different aspect of these creatures so i'm thinking about a very specific part of the series you know daenerys takes her dragons north of the wall to you know, uh, to save Jon Snow and yeah, and his whole crew who are battling uh, the White Walkers. Oh yeah. And as far as we can tell, the north of the Wall is essentially Arctic. Yeah. It is freezing Tundra, cold. Yeah. Everyone's wearing like bear fur oh, yeah. and mammoth. No, nobody's skins. wearing hats though, which is always <laughs> my confusion. I'm just like, aren't your ears cold, guys? Yeah, but everyone also has like a, a complete mop of hair. Yeah, so exactly. maybe that's that, true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> nobody's bald in the, uh, the the Game of Thrones. No, it can't it's can't all, be. It, yeah, not know. in that kind of weather. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's probably a selection pressure. Like <laughs> yeah, if, you're, exactly. if you're bald, you die. Yeah, evolution, baby. Yeah. Um, so. You know, she's taking these dragons north of the wall. And, but if, if these dragons are reptiles, yeah. they are cold-blooded. They're ectotherms. So they don't actually produce their own body heat. Right? If, if we're thinking about this as, you know, if we were thinking about them as traditional reptiles. But we see them, they fly north of the wall. Mm-hmm. And not only do they fly north of the wall, but they go into battle and like they seem to be do they seem to do perfectly fine except for that thing that happens sure sure they seem to do perfectly fine yeah, in, in that climate in yeah. these you know probably sub zero 
uh, temperatures. So that brings up a whole different question of, you know, whether or not these dragons, right, are they actually ectothermic? Are they not? Like, what aspects of their biology would allow them to continue to function in these really, really cold temperatures? Yeah. So let's hear what Brett has to say about this. Awesome. Well, one hint, and again, this has provided a, a fair amount of interest and debate in the, in the scientific world, is uh, the extent to which dinosaurians were endotherms. There is evidence mm-hmm. that the, the large uh, dinosaurs were endothermic, and certainly the trajectory that led towards birds and the trajectory of dinosaurs that led towards mammals somewhere along the way evolved endothermy. So my, my pet hypothesis with regard to that would be that the, the dragons could, for example, have some form of uh, endothermy. They may be able to regulate body temperature in a way that many modern reptiles, like you mentioned, uh, turtles, for example, or snakes, don't. Another major advantage uh, that they have is that they're large, mm-hmm. and as a general pattern, uh, when you think about body size and the relationship between the surface area across which you're losing heat and the volume or muscle mass and so forth generating that heat, as you get bigger, the surface to volume ratio decreases. What that means from the perspective of staying warm is that bigger is better. If you're in a cold environment, you have less surface area to lose heat. And flight and powered flight, such as what the dragons are using, requires an enormous amount of power and that uh, is an inevitable producer of heat because muscle is at best maybe 20% or so efficient and what that would mean is that the power that is being used to to keep the animal aloft say that's 20% of what its muscles are accomplishing the other 80% or so roughly is lost as heat wow so interest so that's really interesting so the fact that they're that they're flying you know when they're doing battle like north of the wall like that flight may actually be helping to keep them keep them warm, Absolutely. which would allow them to continue flying. That's a that's a really interesting interesting dynamic that I, I hadn't considered. Um, and the fact that they're so so the but the fact that they're so large, right? So obviously there's like physiological heat production, right? Like you know human like mammals and and birds engage in, you know. But then there's just this you know this fact of like being large right what's called gigantothermy right just mm-hmm. which isn't sort of active physiological production mm-hmm. but also but it's you know it's just like an inertia essentially right mm-hmm. like you're mm-hmm. you've been warm and you're large therefore you have a tendency to stay warmer longer right? yeah thermogenic inertia absolutely okay yeah yeah but that's a fascinating point that uh, in terms of even as we humans would do if you're out on a cold day and you might be shivering, that's a shivering thermogenesis, but also if you just simply start dancing around a little bit, hopping up and down to keep warm, that's a, a process of using exercise to raise your, or maintain your temperature yeah. in the face of cold. Yeah, so, it, but interesting, so in that sense, right, just sort of looking at what we see on the screen, we can't, we still can't quite tell whether or not they're physiologically warm-blooded, right. or whether or not they're just big and flying, so therefore they're producing heat and holding on to that heat better. Right. Okay, so right. it's still a question up in the air. I would say, yeah, in terms of, you know, it would be wonderful to, to look at uh, regulation temperature and how it might change uh, as they land. You would expect uh, certain patterns that, you know, they wouldn't be able to maintain, they would get lethargic and start mm-hmm. behaving like a very unhappy lizard <laughs> Yeah. in those conditions. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
this ended up being a much more complicated answer to this yeah. question yeah. than than I thought it would be. So it's possible that maybe as close relatives to uh, to to modern birds, maybe they are actually endotherms. Maybe they had the physiological ability to produce their own body heat, which still seems to be an ongoing question when it comes to the dinosaurs themselves, whether or not they were endothermic or ectothermic, whether they could produce their own heat or not. But there's also this the simple fact that they're that they were just humongous, right? We yeah. see, um, you know, I think the, the largest is Drogon. Yeah. And I mean, he's gargantuan. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, you're talking about an animal that must weigh what, north of two tons, oh. probably. Yeah. Yes. And just by being that large, you can hold on to to heat very, very well because you have this really large volume compared to your surface area, which makes it hard to dump heat really quickly in the environment, which would come in handy if you are a reptile trying to fight off ice zombies basically in yeah. uh, in these arctic environments that's a, that's a little handy little uh, yeah yeah this, I, this and that's that's this idea of of thermo, uh, thermogenic inertia mm-hmm. but that also points out that there are all of these alternative strategies that even ectothermic species can use to generate heat right so mm-hmm. even if they're not able to generate heat like a mammal or a bird there are many strategies that would still allow for uh, for heat production. So typically when we think, you know, so if we're thinking about thermal physiology, we can categorize animals across like two major axes, right? So you have endotherms and then you have ectotherms. You know, endotherms can produce their own heat. Ectotherms cannot produce their own heat. But then you also have poikilotherms versus homeotherms. And poikilotherms, they have fluctuating body temperatures with respect to their their internal body temperature fluctuates with the external temperature in the environment. Okay. But homeotherms actually maintain a stable internal body temperature. Now, typically, we have a tendency to sort of group the ectotherms with the poikilotherms and group the endotherms with the homeotherms, but that's not always the case. So... You can actually be an ectotherm, not produce, physiologically produce your own body heat like a mammal or a bird, but you can still maintain a constant body temperature. For instance, you know, tuna have very specialized circulatory systems that allow them to maintain a constant body temperature uh, around their around their muscles and their heart, which it allows them to power these extreme swimming movements that mm-hmm. they do in these relatively cold waters. But also, you know, one of the things that Brett mentioned is the fact that they're flying and that flight in itself is generating heat. And because muscle is so inefficient, a lot of the energy that's being produced through flight is actually being lost as heat, which in this case is a really good thing because when you couple that that heat loss with being gigantic. Yeah. Now, all of a sudden, you're producing heat through that powered flight, and then you're holding on to it because you're huge, mm-hmm. even though you're not physiologically generating heat like a mammal or a bird would. Yeah. You know, so it's the, you know, this combination of you know, gigantothermy and this heat production. And we also see that there are ectothermic species in our universe that do the same thing. So things like bees, for instance, okay. right, they are 
insects, they're ectotherms, they don't produce their own physiological body heat, but they have a means of decoupling their wings from their flight muscles, and then they can vibrate those flight muscles in order to produce heat. And in so doing, they can maintain an actual, they, they can maintain a relatively stable body temperature. So, you know, I mean, that doesn't shed a whole lot of light on what the potential yeah, is. Yeah. Like, are they, are they exotherms? Are they endotherms? What is yeah. going on? And we don't, would it have any effect on them in the, when they're in the warmer climates? Like, I feel like we don't see them, you know, like resting or getting overheated too much, right? So That's true. would that have, a, like, on the other end, because they're doing, if they're, uh, you know, producing their own heat through the flying and everything in the, uh, beyond the wall, and probably they also love the north, um, but... But like when they're in the warmer climates, uh, I'm trying to remember. I mean, maybe maybe we've seen them rest, but I feel like they're just like you know, Daenerys comes up, they're always ready to go for a flight or whatever. You know, yeah. there's no like, you know, I, I would expect them to be like, all right, I'm done. T- you know, ten minute flight. Uh, yeah, <laughs> got to take a break. I take a nap. Yeah, but uh, there are all sorts of uh, ectotherms, ectothermic species that uh, that can regulate their body temperature through behavior. Hmm. You know, there are many species, actually the largest reptiles on the planet, uh, you know, crocodilians, mm-hmm. they spend a vast majority of their time in the water. Yeah. And they actually occur in really warm environments. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like subtropical environments around the around the equator. But because they spend like part of their their life in water, right, they can behaviorally thermoregulate. And, you know, so just like choosing shady spots, mm-hmm. uh, choosing to like go underground. I, I imagine there are very few places underground that would fit an entire dragon. Yeah. But, I don't know. Maybe they burrow. Cave or, yeah, yeah dig, dig their own holes. Yeah. yeah. There's like all sorts of biology that we don't see going sure. on. But oh, yeah. There are all of these other means by which, uh, you know, a large reptile, for instance, can can go about cooling itself when it gets too uh too warm and this is a problem that reptiles across the the planet face you know pretty much daily because they're concentrated for the most part in the tropics yeah yeah but when we're considering right whether or not these dragons might be cold-blooded or whether they might be warm-blooded maybe it's actually their feeding habits that may shed some light on this subject because one of the downsides of being an endotherm, constantly producing your own body heat, is that it's very energetically costly. Mm-hmm. Right? Whereas being an ectotherm, energetically speaking, because it has a tendency to be a more passive process, right, is it saves a lot more energy. So if you're flying and you need to uh, expend a whole bunch of energy, maybe these animals have to eat constantly. Mm-hmm. So let's hear what Brett has to say about or what further information we can pull about the underpinning biology of these dragons based on what we see on the screen. Do you think that we can sort of get a little bit deeper into this question if we consider sort of like the metabolic requirements of like endothermy versus ectothermy? Like obviously if these animals are massive, you know, when we think about really large endotherms, right? things like you know elephants and blue whales versus very large ectotherms like Komodo dragons, crocodilians, mm-hmm. you know, they have very distinct and separate feeding patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I wonder, so in, 
in Game of Thrones, we actually we don't see the like the dragons are not constantly eating, right? right. Like they right. have like a meal every once in a while, mm-hmm. at least that we see. Right, right. Um, so what what does that tell? Like the yeah. their size in combination to in combination with how how frequently they eat. Like does that help us determine whether or not they might have been endo versus ectotherms? Sure. Well, it, it's, I would say that there's, it's going to probably raise more questions than it answers because uh, it's, it, while well, true, it, it, the cost of being an endotherm in terms of basal maintenance is enormous. And so you do wind up seeing animals grazing constantly. The grazing feature is tricky because grazing, for example, in the case of an elephant, is on fairly low protein, fairly low caloric, high volume. It's just knocking down acacia trees and eating leaves. and. And by contrast, a uh, meat eater is getting a high protein, a very uh, energetically rich diet. And so I would hmm, think about, uh, for a comparison, we probably have to start to think about the fossil record and very large extinct carnivore uh, examples. And we don't know what their behavior was. If they would say behave more like a very large cat and have a big meal, and then lay around the other 23 hours of the day sleeping. It's still true that the cat is endothermic, even though it's remarkably lethargic most of the time. And then you contrast that, my point is, with something that is getting a, a constant need of deer, for example, either eating or digesting the grass they ate, but always doing it pretty much mm-hmm. constantly. I think something comes to mind that is telling, though. Uh, maybe the dragons are behaving somewhat like a battery, if you will, because they are fire breathing, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that uh, that that uh, capacity to generate fire must come from somewhere, right? Yeah. That's a mysterious physiological component that is hard to delve into. You know, think of electric eels, for example, storing up a charge and zapping. But the notion of generating heat above environmental temperature and then spitting it out at the enemy is, uh, uh, you know. A, a, a massive blast of fire. That, I think that's a good hint there, endothermic. <laughs> yeah, okay, fair enough. So it seems like eating patterns themselves do, do not necessarily solve yeah. this we problem for still us. still in the dark yeah. on these guys. It's, but I think it's, it's a fascinating exploration, totally. right, to, yeah. to try to pick all this stuff apart. Um, you know, but one of the things that Brett does bring up that is obviously a fascinating component mm-hmm. about dragons is... The fire breathing. You can't talk fire. about the dragons without, without the talking fire. about the fire. Oh yeah. And uh it's like, oh god, those the scenes where um you know where you know Daenerys gives the command, was it uh Dracaris. Dracaris and yeah. then you know, Yeah, they just so epic. Light it up. Just yeah. so epic. Yeah. Yeah, and that does break beg the question, like where like is there anything that can explain this phenomenon that yeah. we're seeing. Now, obviously, in the real world, there's nothing that breathes fire. Uh, At least not that I have ever heard of. Yeah. I've done a, a fair amount of biology. Yeah. And oh, I th- yeah. I th- I th- it's safe to say. Not 100% sure, but it's safe I've to say. I think I've met a few people that are pretty close. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. <you know. laughs> uh, yeah. Or full hot air, at least. Uh, yeah. De- yeah. I've definitely met some people full of hot air. <laughs> yeah. But not to the point where they actually breathe yeah. fire, though. I've never seen it. <laughs> but if we're, if we're thinking about how close we can get, mm-hmm. you know, there are some species. So if we're thinking about actual... If we're thinking about actually expelling fire, I think this is mostly science fiction or fantasy sure. in, in yeah. this case. 
But there are species that produce chemicals that interact at extremely, extremely high temperatures. And maybe what we're seeing, the, the actual fire, is the byproduct of some chemical reaction that is going on either inside or right outside of the dragon's mouth. You can imagine a scenario where a dragon may have, for instance, two chemicals that are stored on either side of their mouth, and they then spray those chemicals, and at the cross stream, those chemicals interact, they react, and produce an exothermic reaction, Mm -hmm. and in interacting with the air or something like that would produce fire. And it seems extreme, but there are actually some species that do something very similar. For instance, uh, bombardier beetles, uh, they store uh, in these two separate compartments in their abdomen two different chemicals. One is uh, hydroquinone. The other is hydrogen peroxide. Hmm. And when it shoots these two chemicals out, it shoots them out so that they cross streams. And where they cross streams, they interact And they can produce temperatures up to 212 degrees Fahrenheit. That's about 100 degrees Celsius. Whoa. Yeah. That seems pretty close. Yeah. It's it's not fire, but that is almost exactly the boiling point of water. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty – we're talking about, like, pretty high temperatures. Now, if you scaled that up to the size of a dragon and you imagine – like spitting out some similar types of chemicals by the gallons, yeah. like the sheer force of that reaction may actually set things on fire. Oh, yeah. And is, is there that, that dinosaur in Jurassic Park? I know that's another episode, but uh, <laughs> the one in the, in the first one that spits on Newman, uh, yeah. <laughs> is that a real dinosaur? Yeah, so the Dilophosaurus itself is a real species, okay. but I must admit I do not know if it actually spits Yeah. Gunk could be a little Hollywood. Yeah, uh, and because you know. the, the thing is, I just I don't know what fossil evidence sure. would suggest that sort of of biology. Yeah, you know. But in either case, it, it definitely looks scary on screen. Oh yeah, so. absolutely. And I can if I picture this be- this beetle. I, I don't know how big it is, but it's very small. It's at me. Yeah, but um, I mean, if you think about something like a dragon doing doing this, I mean, I think you get really close. Yeah. Oh yeah. This would require really modified, like, mouth and skull morphology. But in the real world, we see that reptiles have several times undergone extreme evolutionary modifications of their their heads, like different aspects of, you know, of their jaw and skull. You know, in, you know, the most relevant instance here, things like spitting cobras, Mm -hmm. right? So... You know, venomous snakes in general, right? I mean, they have, they're storing these toxic chemicals Mm -hmm. in their head, right? The venom, right? And some of these venoms are hemotoxic, lysing uh, lysing things like blood cells and tissue cells. Some are neurotoxic, you know, destroying nervous system function. And, And so these are, you know, extremely volatile chemicals that are being stored in their head. And they're, it's the, the venom itself is modified saliva, and so not only have they figured out a way to produce it and to store it, but in the case of spitting cobras, they actually have very large venom glands hmm. and they have modified their teeth in such a way. So uh, in most venomous species, 
they their their fangs act essentially as a syringe, right? Where there's okay, a, sure. a, a hollow tip. Yeah, yeah. And that is what they use to, to inject venom. That. Yeah. But for spitting cobras, the the hole has migrated from being at the tip of the tooth to the front of the tooth oh, wow. and angled inwards so that essentially each fang acts as a water gun. Right? So they spit the venom out at an angle, yeah. much in the way that we would expect a dragon to with these two different chemicals that okay. we're hypothesizing, right? into a cross spray that, would, that then like, spreads out this very fine mist, typically into the eyes of a would-be, of a would-be predator. Yeah. Right, so we're getting there, that's that's yeah, pretty close. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, it's not completely satisfying, uh, but I think that's about as close as yeah, we can yeah. get, and closer than than I think we would expect on mm-hmm. initially looking at the situation. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So maybe that was somewhat satisfying, partially satisfying. Yeah. I hope. Um, I feel good about it. Yeah. <laughs> but th- this aspect of flight and the origins of flight and physiology of these dragons just still bothers me oh yeah uh you know so if we're just thinking about all the different aspects of these dragons and what it would take for them to to actually power flight given their size i mean there's all sorts of things that you know there are all sorts of trade-offs that we have to take into account right so if we think about the targaryens uh and how they that that entire family has used dragons over the millennia. Like you think about, you know, not only Daenerys, but her father her and her grandfather yeah. Oh, yeah. and so on. You know, back when dragons were much more abundant mm-hmm. before they were all killed off. Yeah. Uh, except for the, you know, Daenerys's three. Yeah, they used to have battles where both sides had dragons. Yeah. So, so there must have been tons of them. Exactly. Yeah. And, but if we're thinking about using these dragons in battle, right, they're, one of the reasons why they're they've been they're using them is one the advantage of flight right mm-hmm. so as far as we know as far as i've seen you know the dragons are the only flying yeah. weapon that oh, yeah. anyone has right it's like which is fighter like, jets yeah, yeah exactly like, yeah. which is an extreme advantage mm-hmm. to have in uh, in battle but there's also the protection angle oh, yeah. right in the sense that these are very heavily armored extremely dense animals and you know like we see uh through as the um as the the latest part of the plot um sort of unfolds that you know the lannisters are going through this process of trying to design weapons specifically uh to kill these dragons mm-hmm. and one of the big issues is that they need something strong enough to to penetrate the very dense skulls of these animals yeah. now that suggests that they have a very unbird-like skeleton. Yeah. Uh, Not hollow know, at all. Exactly yeah. the exact opposite. So th- when we're thinking about these two things, you know, being so heavy, obviously that plays an energetic cost when it comes to powering flight. And you know, to more easily power flight, theoretically, you would have to take away from the armor that makes these animals so tough. Yeah, you got to get that big body in the air. You know, exactly. Yeah, which in itself must be very metabolically oh, costly. Yeah. And it also must take extremely large pectoral muscles. Yeah. Like I'm talking about like Arnold Schwarzenegger oh, yeah. man boobs in yeah. order to They just power do chest at the gym like three days day, a week. Every yeah, day. Every day. Like, do yeah. you even lift? Yeah, do you lift, bro? <laughs> what about the back? Come on. Exactly. Yeah, balance. <laughs> yeah, but that muscle itself is mm-hmm. also uh metabolically costly. Yeah. Right. And 
uh, and it has consequences, you know, being that size of like maneuverability and yeah, it, it has all sorts of consequences, right? So there's all these metabolic demands on being really large and also uh, powering flight, especially when we see that the dragons, again, they're not built in the same way that we see other powered flying animals built. So mm-hmm. if you think about something like a bat or, um, you know, or most birds that fly, uh, they have, you know, these really big upper bodies and like this really tight V that goes down to these super dinky yeah. little legs, right? Tiny because, legs, yeah. you know, in terms of flying, if you're powering flight with your upper body, having a bunch of weight on your lower body, it's just costing more and more and more. Yeah. And when we look at these dragons, they actually have pretty chunky hind limbs. Right? Yeah. These are these are bulky animals. Yeah, and like a tail they, to boot. Exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah, and like you know, so that's a lot of really big, thick, extra weight. So I asked Brett a little bit about the potential energetic expenditure and costs. You know, not only just with size, but with the shape of these animals. Uh, so let's hear what he says about the extra costs associated with being the shape of these dragons that we see. Yeah. So given that dragons must have been physically, just physically heavier, and obviously they're pretty bulky and like their hind limbs are kind of, I mean, they're short, but kind of chunky. Mm-hmm. Like what does this tell us about, <laughs> like what, what does the overall like shape and pattern of these animals tell us about, about their ability to fly? It's, it's, that it's magic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I would say, but the, um, yeah, in, in terms of a remarkable evolutionary achievement would be a, perhaps another way of putting it. One of the uh, recurring questions I get is uh, to what extent there is hope for humans to put large wing-type shaped things on their arms and move their arms in such a way that they could power their own flight. And my answer to that is uh, not to be you know, too harshly skeptical. Never say never, right? But basically I say it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And Never say never, but right. never. <laughs> never. <laughs> 99% never. Okay. Statistically never. And the, I think the uh, reason is straightforward, when, especially when you compare our body form to that of a bat. Mm-hmm. And if you see the musculoskeletal system of a bat, Without the skin and so forth, you can uh, appreciate that it's got this incredible torso, V-shaped, incredibly muscular shoulders, and lat, lats, and just an overall V-torso, and the skinniest, wimpiest hind limbs one can imagine. Mm. It, it looks ridiculously small in terms of its legs. Like it never did leg day. Yeah. It just skipped the squats. Sk- yep, it skipped all the squats, and it just <laughs> did, you know, got arrested at an early phase of development. And... The reason for that in bats is why they can move their forelimbs and fly is that the legs would represent weight that's not contributing to the ability to fly once you're in the air. It's payload. It's just a pure cost. And uh, when you take an animal that looks quite terrestrial in terms of its hind limb morphology, intuition tells us that it's got to be heavy. You take a thick skull, you take thick skin, all of those features are heavy. And in flight, the term heavy is just the enemy. Anything you can do to make things lighter, and you can simply look towards engineering. Going back to human-powered flight, what's been accomplished is to use a, a light individual who's also an expert bicyclist, and they've got these massive legs 
but relatively skinny arms when you look at professional bicyclists. Put them in an extremely light plane, put a propeller on it with very large wings. And what that all comes down to is that you know, something the size of a human can fly by its own power, but you have to take advantage of the design. And if the muscular legs are providing that power, great. Yeah, but the reverse of that, large legs, uh, really large head shields and thick skin uh, basically represent pure payload that's not helping. And it comes down to what's called wing loading or the weight being supported per unit wing area. And probably the best way to approach understanding how magic the capacity of those di uh, the dragons are would be to map out and look at patterns in existing flyers and then see where they fit on that line. And mm -hmm. I would predict, without having done any real measurements, that they would be way above the line in terms of their wing loading. But in the never say never category, if you go and weigh something like a 777 jetliner, they're extremely heavy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then they get up off the ground. And so uh, one has to ask in terms of the capacity to fly if you're extremely heavy and then your, your shell, in the case of a modern airplane, is made of titanium or some type of aluminum alloy and carbon fiber or um, steel that uh, is extremely heavy. The, the, there's two features there. It just is extraordinarily costly. And it takes a massive jet engine to get up off the ground. And um, the other component of that is that those planes fly very fast. And so both of the things go hand in hand with high wing loading. It is just really extremely costly. But if you can supply that uh, in terms of the metabolism, you can supply the energy per unit time to get up off the ground, uh, so be it. Mm -hmm. And uh, then once in the air, in terms of existing flying things, those that have high wing loading tend to fly fast. Okay. They don't hover, for example. Okay. So then does that mean, so if we, if we take this back to the physiology, you know, obviously like when you're up in the air, like powered flight, you know, that's going to generate heat. The fact that they're massive means that they're going to retain that heat. Mm -hmm. But before you get there, actually getting up into the air, right, does that mean that, I mean, it seems like you, what you're saying is that they would, they need, you have to have massive metabolic expenditure to sort of overcome this discrepancy of like body size versus versus wing size. Yeah. So does that mean that they would actually have to be endothermic in order to, to physiologically produce the heat required to actually get up in the air in the first place? I would say yes. Okay. That, that uh, it requires an enormous metabolic effort. So all in all, if we consider not just like the fact that they have powered flight, but exactly how they fly, and we consider the energetic expenditures of that flight given their size, the metabolic demands of that flight and how they're flying, like you know, the way that they set up, um, the way that they set up takeoffs and so on, seem to be much more similar to birds than they do to things like pterodactyls. So all in all, I think maybe we have yeah. a strong support to say that these dragons are probably pretty closely related 
to birds. Yeah, I mean, maybe chicken they with teeth. I mean, yeah, that's, exactly. that's got to be it. That, yeah. I mean, that's exactly what I see Problem when, I, when I'm looking at Drogon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Drogon, it's a big chicken with teeth. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you'd be eating that drumstick for years. Yeah. Oh, my God. That would be, you go to like the medieval festivals and you get that big turkey leg. <laughs> yeah. That would be something totally different. Yeah. 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 You'd need a semi for that yeah, one. Yeah. Oh, oh. So, all in all, man, this was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, I. You know, Game of Thrones is obviously it's epic. It's a cultural phenomenon. Yeah. I'm going to be very, very sad uh, when it's when it's all Absolutely. over. But we've actually, I mean, looking back at the first season, if you you look at the actors in season one and oh, yeah. you look at them in the current, like you realize how much time has passed. Oh my gosh! You know? Yeah, they've all grown up. And I know. Like, yeah, on screen, which is, I mean, I think that's a really special thing. You know, as you know, as a member of the audience, like following Absolutely. this this epic storyline. Yeah, it really, I think it's one of the things that has drawn so many people in is the fact that, you know, you get so invested, yeah. you know, especially in a show where literally anyone can die at yeah. at any the moment. People that survive are like the... <laughs> yeah, you're just yeah, holding you're on rooting to rooting for them. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I, want, I want to see what they all do next. Maybe, yeah. maybe the dragons will have a spinoff show <laughs> even, you know. <laughs> That'd be uh, amazing. Yeah, yeah. Like a like a, a, a dragon direwolf team up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, what was that, that show, The Dinosaurs or whatever back in the day? I would oh, be yeah. like, yeah, they could have the dragons, you know, just family... Uh, Three three brothers, you know, just yeah. hanging out. I don't know. <laughs> one of them's the responsible one. Exactly. One of them's the messy one. Yeah, always partying. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. You know, and then one is like the classic middle child. Yeah, I, yeah. I'd watch that. Yeah, I'd watch that too. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much, Ted Man, for being no in problem. the lab. This was so much fun. For the folks that are listening, where can they find you? Uh, I, I guess best place would be Instagram. Uh, I'm not really great at it or anything, but uh, that's definitely the one I focus on. It's uh, I'm just at Ted Limpert, T E D L I M P E R T, and uh, yeah, I've got a website too. It's TedLimpert.com, but uh, otherwise, just uh, hopefully watch out for me on the TV or, awesome. uh, or listen for his voice. Exactly, and commercials or uh, maybe the next animated feature. Hopefully, with dragons in it. Maybe, yeah. I, maybe I could voice a dragon. Yeah, like maybe maybe how to how to train a dragon for exactly. Yeah, hey, I'm available. Yeah. Uh, DreamWorks, yeah. you heard it here. DreamWorks, yeah. Holla at your boy. Yeah, I'm, I'm around. I got a great <laughs> dragon voice. I'm a dragon. <laughs> that, that's a good dragon yeah, voice. Yeah, baby dragon. You know, they got to start out somewhere. Cool. Well, thank you again so much for being no in the Thanks man. for having me. It was yeah. awesome. We yeah. have to do this again sometime. Definitely. All right, man. Peace. Peace out. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of The Biology of Superheroes podcast. Now that this episode is out, I can binge on that last season this weekend. Do not judge me because I have no Shame. 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 Remember to rate us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at SuperBioPodcast. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook as well. Also, you can send us your questions and comments at biologyofsuperheroes at gmail.com. So with that, thanks again and stay curious.